Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out. Okay, let's do this. So really excited to welcome to the show today, Rune Christiansen, CEO of the Maker Foundation. Rune, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today. So I guess to get started, Rune, would love to learn more about your background and how you got into crypto. So I actually got into Bitcoin in 2011 because I saw a Bitcoin address on uh, some random website. And then once I saw that Bitcoin address, I was like, I had to figure out what that is. And then I basically jumped into the Bitcoin rabbit hole and became really, really interested in Bitcoin for several years and put all my money into Bitcoin as well at, at 80 bucks. Um, but then what actually happened was that I ended up, um, you know, so the Bitcoin price went up a lot, but then it also crashed and I actually lost almost all of my gains. Um, and from that experience of like losing so much money, I realized that what's really needed to make the, you know, the Bitcoin story and the blockchain story in general really appealing is that, this issue with volatility needed to be solved. So from there, I got into to stable coins. Initially, the BitShares project, which was the, the first ever stable coin. Um, and then eventually, um, me and, uh, and other people from the BitShares project essentially like moved onto Ethereum and took the best aspects of the, the BitShares stable coin model and implemented that on Ethereum. And that's what then became Maker as it exists today. So when was that? So that was actually, um, I mean, so I actually got, I started working on an Ethereum-based stablecoin very, very late 2014. So uh, actually even, oh, wow. you know, before That's Ethereum. Really had yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, we were one of the absolutely first Ethereum projects and we were like on the, on the original Ethereum website as one of the projects. And, and I think one of the only ones that have still have stuck around until this day alongside you know, like Augur and Digix and just a few others. Got it. Sounds like you were, you weren't a fan of the volatility that comes along with investing in Bitcoin and I guess most crypto assets in general. Is that because you were more interested in the application of crypto assets as a medium of exchange or what's kind of behind it, right? Because obviously Bitcoin advocates are in it because they see it as a store of value, right? And as basically the equivalent of digital gold. Sounds like that's not really what you were most interested in. Right. I mean, I, I'm certainly, I 
certainly do think that Bitcoin and any other crypto, like Ethereum as well, has the potential as digital gold, right? And that in some cases can be great for speculation. Right. But in the early days of Bitcoin, um, when I joined, right, like the vision was completely different, right? It was actually about uh, doing a lot of the things that the DeFi and stable coins are now finally getting done today. So, so I guess you can say that it, you know, for, for a lot of people, and I guess this is also what drove a lot of people to, for instance, Ethereum was that the vision kind of changed due to the technical constraints and then just the fact that the volatility wasn't going away. So, I mean, it's just like different, there's, there's different types of technology has different use cases, right? And Bitcoin's use case turns out to be digital gold, which is great, but it's not the original vision of digital cash, right? And that's mm-hmm. where what, what me and a lot of other people realized is that to get from digital gold to digital cash, what you need is the stability. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't have stability, I don't know how you can use it as a, yeah, as digital cash. Okay, so so what is for, I guess, the very few listeners who may not be familiar with uh, Maker, what is Maker? Maker, as it's, at its core, is the decentralized autonomous protocol that maintains the stability of the DAI stablecoin um, in a you know, fully decentralized manner um, so that one DAI can actually be equal to $1 in, in most cases um, without needing you know, a central counterparty or some sort of authority that controls and regulates and, and sort of promises to, uh, to keep the value of DAI. Instead, it is, uh, it's maintained through this protocol, which on one hand, ha- you know, on one hand, what the protocol allows for is the creation of DAI. And on the other hand, it's also the creation of decentralized credit. And through that, it's kind of, it's essentially like a, a two-sided marketplace that the mega protocol facilitates where you have the stablecoin users who are, you know, they're looking to use DAI as money and, and for stability. Um, and then on the other, on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, you could say you have what we call vault users. And so vault users are very advanced kind of users that actually deposit collateral. So other Ethereum assets into the system and through these Ethereum assets, access this collateralized lending um, that's also fully decentralized and autonomous. And in fact, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's like giving yourself a loan, essentially the way that the protocol works. And it is through that process that the DAI is then created. And ultimately it is also through this, um, the collateral that exists in the system that DAI uh, is backed and has this provable stability that you can trust. But the critical thing is still that this is all a decentralized protocol and this is all peer-to-peer by, um, you know, a completely free market of participants. So, again, it's actually possible for it to happen without a central counterparty or authority. So one of the interesting um, aspects about Maker is that it's decentralized, which is the, the point you just made. And I think you're taking a different approach than some of the other stable coins that we see out there. In particular, I'm curious, Rune, there's this thesis among some participants in the market that claims that for a stable coin to be successful, it needs to be regulated and controlled by the government. DAI is very different than that. How do you respond to people who claim that 
DAI and any other stablecoin needs to be regulated by the government in order to be successful in the long run. Our thesis is that it's not just the government that needs to regulate a stablecoin for it to be safe and not crash. It really is everyone, right? Because why is it only the government that should have the, you know, the, the insight and also the ability to actually um, try to, to change things in a more positive direction? Um, because the government isn't always right, right? For instance, the financial crisis happened and the CDOs crashed and all of that happened despite the government supposedly regulating that, right? And the, the, the direction that Maker is taking is to um, by, is by decentralizing everything on a completely, um, you know, uh, unbiased protocol where everyone has equal access and everyone has equal insight um, and everything is completely transparent. Um, it means that every, like, every single user has the ability to, for instance, audit the system in real time. And everyone also has the ability to suggest changes and even vote in the system and participate in the governance. And that also means that central banks and governments um, can participate, right? But it, it does also, of course, mean that there's, uh, you know, that there's limits to how any individual can impact the system, right? Because you never want a system where there's a single authority that can just rapidly change things, right? Because that could also be used for bad, potentially, right? So... So that's what we see as, as a big advantage of Maker. Yeah, but I guess what I'm wondering is if we go beyond the individuals and the long tail of users, do you see major banks, major funds, and so forth investing in and using a currency that isn't regulated by the government? I mean, I think they also have some limitations in place, right? Just in terms of their own uh, internal mandate and what they can and cannot do. Right. So ultimately, DAI and the Mega Protocol are just tools. And if you have something like a bank that starts to use it in some specific way, then that doesn't exempt that bank from banking regulation, right? So it still means that if you're using DAI in certain ways where you're clearly doing regulated activity, then you're subject to that type of oversight, just like everyone else. Um, so... And, and of course, there's going like it is going to be a very big challenge and a very um, uh, you know a long road to properly navigate how do you actually integrate blockchain technology and and decentralized stablecoins mm -hmm. into the legacy financial system, right? But I think that in in the, I mean already today that is certainly possible in some of the more um, you know innovation friendly jurisdictions around the world, and. I'm sure that as like it's all a question of doing of, of of doing things step by step, right? So as sort of the more aggressive financial institutions and the more the challenger banks and the more innovative, you know, um, jurisdictions and governments as they start to experiment with the technology and they actually start to reap the benefits and generally just figure out what is really like what is the value of this technology to society, and as that becomes apparent, then it'll just be like dominoes, right? You will just see bigger and bigger countries and jurisdictions embracing blockchain instead of rejecting it because of just of the bottom line, right? Just the fundamental advantages that they get, which is, you know, efficiency, uh, you know, lower fees, right? And then also the transparency and the decentralization provides a level of um, risk mitigation as well as, you know, it, it kind of like, you know, it makes it, 
easier to trust the system, while at the same time means you don't really have to trust it at all, right? You don't have to trust anyone because there's no central counterparty mm-hmm. that could take all your money away, right? So th- these are all um, benefits that actually, especially governments and regulators love, right? Transparency, that's great. That's, you know, one of the biggest problems with the current system is exactly the opaqueness, right? And that's what caused the financial crisis, for instance, right? So the fact that there's a technology that actually provides these concrete benefits that regulators and governments are looking for, I think makes it very clear that as long as things are done step by step and, you know, you know, the technology is adopted carefully and, and conservatively and with a very much, you know, a, you know, um, like a risk-based approach, right, to ensure that nothing goes wrong in the early and experimental phase, then um, I can I could absolutely see it become potentially the, the cornerstone of the global financial system as we know it. Yeah, that's super exciting. And I guess I've heard you referring to why you've decided to peg die to the US dollar previously. You talked about the dollar being the obviously the dominant currency right now, the global uh, reserve currency of the world. My question is, do you see a world where at some point in the future, DAI wouldn't necessarily be pegged to the dollar and potentially you'll, you'll make it even more independent and decentralized and look into a currency where you control the monetary policy? You, I mean, the maker foundation. Well, yeah, so we... I mean, so just to clarify the Mega Foundation. So the Mega Foundation is actually going to dissolve um, and it's not going to participate at all in, in the governance of the system. But so just, just to make that clear, right? Because if the Mega Foundation had a, that kind of role in the system, that would completely negate all the decentralization benefits, right? But the, the system is, actually, is governed by the MKR holders, right? So the, the people hold the MKR token and who use that to vote on the blockchain. And then there's also, on top of that, like a, you know, a lot of processes of checks and balances that ensures that uh, basically through game theory and through aligned incentives that MKR holders then ultimately uh, benefit by voting according to what the users prefer and what the, the broader e- what's best for the broader ecosystem and overall stability. And in, the, you know, and in that context, um, it absolutely makes sense that it might not always be the best for the broader ecosystem and for the users to uh, keep DAI pegged just to the US dollar forever, right? Because there could be uh, all sorts of reasons. Maybe the US dollar just stops being so dominant on a global scale, or maybe there's even uh, US dollar hyperinflation. It could be any reason, really, right? So there's no reason why um, the governance of the system should be constrained by that. Uh, and that's actually why it's called DAI and not called something like Maker Dollar or similar. Um, so the idea is that one day DAI could transition away from, from being picked to any single currency and could instead target something like like either a currency basket or even a CPI basket and try to be essentially like a global currency, right? That isn't meant to serve any particular economy at any specific place but instead just serve the, the international community and the global economy. Um, but at the same time, of course, it's very important that people can, you know, use, if they want to use blockchain technology or they want to use DeFi, um, 
it needs to be possible for them to use that in a way that's familiar, right? You don't want to start using some new technology and then you have to learn all sorts of things and use weird currencies that you don't understand, right? So that's that, that's like a really important point of you know of having US dollar because a lot of people recognize the US dollar. But actually, it's not enough. We need to go beyond that because it's for a lot of people, actually the US dollar is just another weird foreign currency, right? Uh, like in Europe, people don't want to use US dollars. They want to use Euro, right? And in Japan, people want to use yen and so on, right? Like there's so many countries where people, in fact, most countries, obviously, people are most comfortable using their local currency. So the maker protocol and maker governance um, is actually able to, over time, expand the, the range of stable coins that the protocol makes available. So today we only have DAI, which is pegged to the US dollar. But in the future, we could have the Euro die, which would be pegged to the Euro, and Yen die pegged to the Yen. And maybe uh, we would have the US dollar die that would be pegged to the US dollar, and then die itself would then be pegged to a global basket. Mm-hmm. Right. Makes sense. So I, I think that's a good segue to a discussion about what you guys just recently launched on November 18, the multicollateral die, which I think is super exciting. And would love to hear more about that. So maybe before diving deeper, do you want to tell people a bit about the change you've made and the move from single collateral die to a multi-collateral die, which is now backed also by a basic attention token? Yeah. And so what we've actually done is um, just about nine days ago, uh, we actually launched but it's essentially the full realization of the original vision of the system. So, I mean, DAI has been live for more than two years now, but that's been um, the, the, like the versions of DAI that's been live in the past have always been essentially um, kind of like early versions of the system created just so we could try to, to experiment with it, right? And so we could start growing the ecosystem and allow things like the DeFi movement to emerge but ultimately, uh, the, the singular goal has always been to create a, a stablecoin that really is future-proof and that really um, can scale and that can offer all the options and all the possibilities for the governance to do whatever they want in order to, to control the system in a fully decentralized manner far into the future. And that is what we have now launched. So, um, and, and then... One of the key features of this system is the fact that it supports multiple collateral types. But there's actually also a lot of other new features to it, uh, including better security and better game theoretical defenses that, that protects against all sorts of, of um, like uh, crypto economic problems that, that can exist in decentralized stablecoin systems. And also better governance tools and sort mm-hmm. of more freedom for governance, including the ability to also create more stable coins than just die. So it's incredibly exciting that we've launched this, right? Because this is really the culmination of, yeah, almost five years of work that's finally now uh, been released. And, and it's a huge step towards what I was talking about, which is the, the dissolution of the foundation, right? Towards the point where even the mega foundation is not even needed anymore and can simply go away and allow the maker governance and the ecosystem to just fully... Um, run all aspects of the system, right? And even things like the f- further development of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the way I think about it, and tell me if you agree, the single collateral die, you had a fully functional credit generation functionality there. But with the multi-collateral die now, the opportunity to diversify collateralization there, I mean, the use cases that that opens are just mind-blowing, right? And, and, and potentially extending beyond just crypto, right? Like uh, potentially you can have real-world assets added there as collateral moving forward, uh, which, which would be revolutionary. Yeah, and that's the whole point for what we've been doing, right? It's always been about a stable coin is so we can create the stability and this familiarity that will allow regular people to actually enjoy the benefits of blockchain. But that also means if you want to, like that's the stablecoin part, right? If you also want to make the credit system and the, the decentralized credit uh, platform relevant for regular people and for the real world, you of course also need to be able to accept collateral that is more than just crypto. Um, because that's how you actually have, you know, that's how we're going to get this real world impact. And there are so many incredibly cool examples of this, right? And one kind of like um, very uh, classic example, because it's quite easy to understand, um, would be imagine that you could use your house as collateral. So you could turn your house into a token, and then you could put that token into the maker protocol, and then you could actually generate DAI based on that token of your house and this way you've created a fully decentralized mortgage um, where you know you don't you don't need to use a bank as a intermediary you don't need to give away your data to so many different counterparties and and also you will just get really really good rates because you're interacting directly with a what's similar to a money market instead of going through a lot of of uh, intermediaries um, yeah, and it just extends beyond that, right? There's like, there is um, things like trade finance, lending to small businesses, micro lending, um, you know, using commodities and, and bonds and so on as collateral, right? And and it also just means that as a die holder, you become a lot safer because now you don't rely on just a single type of of value to back your stability, right? So even if the Ethereum price totally crashes to almost zero. If the collateral is highly diversified, it actually doesn't matter at all. The system will just totally uh, absorb the loss and keep going. Right, which brings up a really good point because crypto assets by their nature, at least in terms of where we are right now, are very much um, correlated one with the other. Uh, But once you bring on board real-world assets and you diversify, then the risk potentially could go down exponentially yeah absolutely and the th- and the thing is also just and this is kind of what the in a way the secret to the whole uh project is right that the s- fundamental essence of how you make this successfully is you need to be really good at managing the risk of all of this right because crypto is all correlated and is also highly volatile but then if you go and look at something like real-world assets, then you suddenly have to deal with regulation, right? You suddenly have to deal with the fact that now there actually are, in many cases, um, central counterparties and custodians and, yeah, like, you know, changes in the geopolitical climate and all these different factors. And what the MKR holders have to do is they have to balance out all of these risks against each other, right? 
So they have to make sure that there's not too much correlated crypto that could all crash at the same time, but also that there's not too many assets held in one jurisdiction or too many assets of the same type that could also all crash or something. And for this, you know, it should ultimately be possible to create just a highly resilient portfolio of assets where even if there's a huge, if there's a huge crash, it's fine because that's hedged, that hit risk is hedged by, you know, you having a lot of, for instance, um, centralized custodial bonds or something like that, right? But then those bonds, they, they maybe have a risk of getting, you know, frozen or seized by the governments. So you hedge those by making sure that you're actually spread out um, those assets across many different jurisdictions, right? So it doesn't matter if there's one jurisdiction or even three jurisdictions that try to do a crackdown because you're spread across 100 jurisdictions, right? And, and there's so many different aspects like this that ultimately the complexity is, you know, it's very high, right? And it, it, it's going to take a lot of, of research and a lot of time to really get to a point where you can scale this kind of massive portfolio. But um, that's what we've been, you know, we've been working on that for five years already, right? And we already have like an incredibly, just like a very knowledgeable community that actually, you know, are, are beginning to to um, sort of um, understand all of these factors and all of these risks and trying to like map out the path forward so that we can safely scale. Yeah. So there's two elements to it, right? A... By introducing multicollateral, the concept of multicollateral assets, you basically improve the stability of the system and you diversify. And then on top of that, the second element is basically all the new use cases that this introduces. So potentially we could see completely new ways of um, structuring capital and potentially moving away from the traditional debt and equity financings that we know today, to your point about the example of tokenizing your house. So it seems like there's a two different, very distinct, but uh, important advantages to introducing uh, MCD. Yeah, exactly. And there's some really fun examples as well of like completely new use cases. Yeah. What, what, what's the use cases that you're most excited about? Well, I mean, I just think an example I really like to bring up because it's I think it's very unique and also it's actually something that we would expect to come quite soon. Um, and that is, um, so it's it, like the, the, the first example of, of this kind of use case is what we are doing with uh, a startup called Paper Chain. And so Paper Chain is a startup that tokenizes Spotify royalties. So it allows, um, I would say like, you know, I would say like medium success artists, right? So like artists that aren't necessarily in the big, uh, music uh, industrial complex, right? But that has still have actually successful um, music on Spotify and that are earning royalties from that. So right now, um, they still don't have, you know, just because you've got royalties on Spotify, it doesn't really give you that much value in the short run and doesn't really help you so much to kind of like compound on top of your success because those royalties are going to come in over the next many years, right? And so by tokenizing, royalties it allows an artist to then um you know yeah access finance in various ways so one thing could be just selling the rights to the royalties entirely but with maker a new option becomes available which is simply collateralizing those royalties and essentially um like uh, using the maker protocol to give 
you give yourself a loan that could then finance, for instance, your new album or something like that. And I just think that's like a really exciting and really cool example because this is like this is how the blockchain and how DeFi starts impacting the real world, right? Maybe there's actually in the future going to be music and like great, you know, artistic works that only exist because the blockchain allowed it to happen. And I think that's the kind of, you know, that's what it's all about, right? It's not just about, uh, you know, speculation and uh, pumping and dumping and all that kind of stuff that people have typically associated with, with blockchain and crypto, right? It's actually about using technology to improve the world. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the music use case is one that I hear a lot about and I think is, it just makes a lot of sense for blockchain in general to help address rights management. So one change you've also made as part of the MCD is in the old system, right? With single collateral die, the stability fee was paid by maker. And now with the MCD system, basically the owners of CDP or what's now called vaults are, uh, are, are paying that fee in DAI. Why did you make that change? Um, so the thing is that um, in practice, actually, even in single collateral DAI, most users ended up paying like as they kind of like using the, you know, the front ends and like using things like the CDP portal that was, that was created by the foundation. Um, they were given the option to still pay in DAI. And that's for convenience, right? Because if you're if you're someone who's all you, you know, you just want to um, generate some DAI and collect access and liquidity in your ETH without having to sell it, um, and you don't really care about MKR, like then it's actually really annoying to have to go out and buy another token, right? It's to, it's just uh, inefficient and a waste of time, right? So it was built into the various front ends that as you go to pay down your debt and retrieve your collateral. Um, the, the front end of the wallet just automatically takes the, you know, it tells you to pay a little bit more die and then it takes that extra die and just buys the MKR for you and takes care of the of, of paying down the stability fees. So um, in, in multi-collateral die, that's just built in even more efficiently on the back end of the system so that the protocol itself handles this essentially in the same way that um, the front ends of the wallets have been doing it, right? So you just pay die to the protocol and then the protocol takes care of actually, um, you know, buying the MKR and using it as, as uh, you know, like burning it as gas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's mostly about convenience and kind of reducing the friction, basically. Yeah, exactly. Got it. And, and, why, and why BAT? Why basic attention token as the first um, collateral? And also... How much input do you have into that? Because I know, obviously, maker holders, as you described earlier, voted on making that change and voted in favor of uh, adding basic attention token. How much input or how much guidance do you provide there as the, as the project leader? Uh, well, so specifically when it comes to these new, these, uh, like, so, so bad at getting added as... Um, as a, as a collateral type for launch, uh, I obviously have absolutely no input in that at all, right? Because the like the foundation takes care of things like um, developing the protocol, right? And also doing outreach and education and marketing in some places, right? 
but the governance of the protocol itself. So like once we've built it, once we've done the outreach, then it is entirely up to the MKR holders to actually control the protocol. And, and that's not just like, I mean, that's not just something we say, that's actually how the technology works. So that is the only way it can be done. There's no other way to do it. It's only through MKR votes that anything can be done in the protocol. So, um, mm-hmm. but, and so what them, and, and so like, so as when multi-collateral die was launched, that was done with like the, you know, the power of the, what's called the executive vote. So like, um, like a vote that actually changes the state of the system. And that's uh, initialized by having enough MKR holders supporting it. And, but so um, it is right now the foundation um, through what's called the interim risk team. So essentially like the, the community in the past has approved the foundation to act as this, um, you know, act as this kind of like this role in the community where the foundation creates the proposals that is the, that are then voted on. Like, so even though anyone can actually create proposals at any time, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it, it obviously takes some effort, especially to do it securely. So it's important that the community designates um, like some, someone who actually had that responsibility to do it. And so right now the foundation is doing that, but when the foundation, you know, it, it doesn't mean that the foundation just decides whatever they want to put up for vote. Instead, when, um, like that decision-making process is also done by the voters. And so specifically for mm-hmm. the, for the bet token, um, uh, about, I believe it was about two, two months before the launch, um, or possibly even three months before the launch, um, the, we, we, the community ran, uh, what we called a priority poll where basically it allowed MKR holders to rank their preferences for different types of, of assets that they wanted to use as collateral. And so there were, there were seven collateral types available at that point in time that people could choose. And those seven collateral types were actually, um, and the reason why there were only was seven was because they were the ones that had been already tested and, and um, uh, implemented securely from a technical perspective. Is that the main criteria in your mind? Like uh, how much they've been tested and, and been proven to be secure? Well, I mean, that is the, ba- like, that is the base level um, requirement for it to be possible mm-hmm. to even added to the system. Like, so there needs to be some engineering done to kind of like fit it together. And that's through something called an adapter. So the adapter is kind of like the smart contract that allows a particular token to be used as collateral and maker. And uh, so um, seven tokens had been used in testing by the engineering team in the foundation, actually for about a year at that point. Um, and so they have all been tested in the system on test nets. And that's why they were the ones who were available um, for the community to pick as something that would be in the launch itself. But of course, going forward, it's going to work the other way around, right? The community tells the, the engineering teams what they want to add as collateral. And then the engineering teams will do the testing of those particular assets, right? But basically, because we didn't want to delay the launch for the sake of adding more collateral, um, only those that had already been tested were available to choose um, before the mm-hmm. launch. But then, And then everything else will be added after the launch, right? So once, um, once the whole protocol and sort of the upgrade process has stabilized more, then I would expect that uh, the governance will start to to resume sort of 
or, or kind of like, well, yeah, we'll begin its, its, its new mode of operation that also, you know, that includes regularly onboarding new collateral. And then that'll be in a process that's completely new, right? That'll be made up by the community based on, on um, you know, just like observing what works and what doesn't work and trying different things and ultimately trying to, to, um, to consolidate on like a, a process that, that is both efficient but also secure. And through that, just onboarding as many assets as possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I know you mentioned that you expect in the coming weeks and probably months to have a lot of weekly debates and calls among the community to make these types of decisions. Do you have a sense of the timeline in, in terms like, let's say, fast forward a year from now, how many tokens can we expect to have as collateral as part of MCD? Do you have a sense of that? Um, well, so... In the short run, what has right now been agreed um, by the community is that up until next year, um, we are going to like the the governance will basically run in this uh, in, in in what's called kind of like a called a migration phase, essentially like a, a migration cycle. So kind of like a period of time where the focus is not really on operating the system the way it normally should operate, but rather the focus is on protecting the system from the specific risks that exist in how the, the upgrade process from single-level die to multiple-level die will run. So I don't expect that much will happen this year, but then as the, once the, the upgrade process has, has moved forward and, and um, you know, the community feels more safe about the whole thing, then I would expect things to start picking up the beginning of next year. And as for what's going to be like how many collateral types that will be, exist next year, I mean, at the end of next year, I, it's, it's impossible for me to predict, but I think I, like, I would expect a lot. Like I would expect it to, to grow exponentially. So it's going to be about like initially, they'll, it'll be very carefully onboarding of just a few assets. But then as MKR holders and the ecosystem starts to feel, you know, feel more familiar about the process and feel confident that this actually works, then, um, you know, we'll start to, to try to, to test the limits of, of just how much the system can scale because it really is designed to like, it's designed for scale, right? So I would, I would expect it to, to definitely scale. Mm -hmm. and, and, and do you have like a number in mind? I guess I'm wondering is there a limit to how many tokens you can add or want to add? Maybe maybe there's a point where it's too much and actually doesn't add a lot of benefit or like how are you thinking about that? Well, so there's certainly no limit. I mean, it really is about growing it to as big a size as possible. But the essential problem is risk management, right? So... What is so important is that as the system grows, it needs to grow in a way that's healthy so that the collateral is diversified as more and more assets are onboarded, right? So what it means is that if, if there's explosive growth and a lot of, you know, crypto is added, right? That means that also ha that has to be balanced out against some real world assets to hedge the risk of, of you know, the specific risk that exists with crypto and its volatility. And if, let's say, a lot of um, something like real estate tokens are added or something, then there also has to be a big amount, you know, you know, a, 
big like a lot of diversity and a lot of assets that are just not correlated with real estate so maybe commodities and you know stocks or something like that that could be different and, and of course also crypto itself right um and gold and and all of that stuff right so so that is basically the only thing that matters is that as the system grows it needs to grow in a very holistic way where every aspect of the collateral portfolio manages to grow and manages to diversify um and as long as that's the case there's there's really no limit i mean then the system really should be able to just grow to the point where it almost absorbs the global financial system yeah that's that's fascinating i mean we're in uncharted territory i don't know that any company or startup tried to do that before which is i guess part of the reason why i find it just so fascinating and exciting and what's your sense of when you will add assets from the more traditional finance world as opposed to crypto assets so there's already a number of um projects specializing in tokenizing assets so that they can be used as collateral in multilateral debt. And there's actually also been a few proposals by projects who came to the community and and are basically suggesting that um, their assets should be should be added soon um, as collateral and, and to, to test out what it's like to have real-world collateral in a portfolio. Um, but I mean, what's happening, of course, is that because this is going to be the very first time ever that real-world assets will be onboarded by the governance community, and also because the governance community only now is even beginning to consider, you know, to like fully consider the process of, of what it actually takes to onboard any asset, whether it's real-world collateral or not. Um, so, like, so a lot of this is about icebreaking, right? Which means it takes quite a while to kind of like get all the things in place and figuring out how to deal with things like regulatory risk and so on. Um, so, I mean, I, I certainly respect several months, right? But um, I, I would not be surprised if we have some real-world assets in the collateral portfolio in like the first half of next year. Yeah, and I saw also the collateral onboarding guide that you published, I think it was in July, right? About how to nominate tokens for uh, multi-collateral. It's going to be really interesting to see how that evolves. One other thing I want to touch on as part of this uh, recent launch you also introduced the concept of the die savings rate, right? DSR, uh, which basically makes it possible to earn savings by simply holding die, then activating a smart contract related to that. The rate you set is about 2% right now. And I find that super compelling and interesting because, yes, you have the risk of decentralized finance in general and using smart contracts, but there's no counterparty risk here. You remove the middleman and you can start earning interest and liquidate that or withdraw your digital cash at any point in time. Yeah, I mean, the die savings rate is essential to what makes the mega protocol so powerful because it is, it is through the die savings rate that the protocol realizes so much, like so much, so, just so much efficiency that ends up benefiting the end user um, by essentially, you know, charging the cost of capital in the form of the stability fee to um, to the vault users that deposit collateral into the system. But then, in but then, um, as that 
as that value flows into the system, most of that value is then also paid out to those who provide that capital into the system by holding DAI. Um, and right now in the financial industry and in banks, the spread that a bank will take between what it pays out um, to those who deposit into the bank and then what it demands from those who borrow from the bank, that spread is at, you know, in the in sort of the most hyper-efficient cases, that spread would be 3%. Um, and it is like, in fact, that's actually never possible for a regular person, for like a retail customer to get that, that lower spread. But even, you know, so retail customer would have a, will pay a spread of 4%, a 5% maybe. Um, and most likely a lot more even. And with the Maker Protocol, we are starting out, like in the very beginning, uh, the spread is 2%. So it's already below what, um, what is even possible to get for the for the most privileged customers of a bank, um, but likely that spread will go even lower. There's not really anything um, like it. It is up to maker governance to basically um, carefully decide how to manage that spread over time. And uh, the general consensus is that the spread needs to be as low as possible, right, for maximal efficiency, so to benefit the users of the system as much as possible. Um, and of course. The critical thing is that the spread also is a part of risk management. So it's not like, you know, the protocol can just pass on all the, like all the, the stability fees that are paid into the system, just, pay, you know, pay all of that out as die savings rate. Um, that would be, that would be risky. Like that, that actually wouldn't be sustainable, but it can be, but it can be, you know, it can be very close to the risk premium, right? So like the, the, um, the average rate of, of uh, default over time in the system. Um, and that's just such a, like, if we can actually get that, like get a, a financial protocol that has a new, just like way better efficiency than the current banking system. And we can get that in as kind of like the backbone of the financial system. Then what that means is that these efficiency gains will be realized everywhere, right? So essentially it will just make all of society richer and, and everyone better off because the banks will be taking less, right? Like it won't be like today where the financial system is almost like taxing everyone just by running their, their services so inefficiently. Um, it'll be the opposite. It'll be the financial system is completely transparent and is hyper efficient. And the value created from that efficiency is passed on to the regular people, thus benefiting everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say also like the simplicity of it, right? The few clicks you can start earning interest on your cash, your digital cash. I remember I saw somewhere, I think it's your head of smart contracts, right? Mariano Conti describing how he uses DAI for savings in Argentina in order to protect him and his family from uh, the devaluation in the Argentine peso. And I just thought like, that's just so compelling. And you can see how many people in Western societies, but also in emerging economies, people who are unbanked or underbanked, like this could truly be, could have a huge impact on their daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and uh, so Argentina is, is definitely the place where DAI has the most traction right now. There's really this like organic um, demand and organic ecosystem of regular people using DAI to escape the hyperinflation of Argentina right now. 
Um, and also DAI in general is the most uh, popular stablecoin in South America. So that's like, so we re- like, we, yeah, we're really proud of that, that, that um, we've actually managed to like get that kind of traction in the real world with, with real people who use it exactly just to like mainly to escape the inflation of their national currencies. And so adding the DAI savings rate to that is of course like an even bigger deal. It's like, DAI in its current state is already very interesting for a regular Argentinian to use in order to avoid hyperinflation. But then being able to get that that savings rate, like getting that extra um, low risk uh, yield on your money, that's just like, I mean, that just really makes for a very, uh, very high potential product, right? That, that we believe can really be adopted very broadly in South America. Absolutely. And, the, and and when you think about the use cases beyond that, because, I mean, you can use the savings rate, you can implement it on the back end of any DeFi product that uses DAI. What are some of the use cases that maybe you already see there being developed or that you're most excited about? Yeah, so the really compelling thing about the DAI savings rate is that uh, it's inherent to the protocol. So that means you're not taking any extra risk when you're getting the die savings rate, which is, you know, different from if you go to a, a DeFi lending platform or something like that and lend out your die there. When you're doing that, you're actually lend, like you're giving away your die to someone else and hopefully they'll pay it back to you later plus interest. But the die savings rate is not lending out your die. The die savings rate is simply the maker protocol having built into, the, you know, it's built into the mega protocol that it will send you these die savings rate um, payments essentially in real time. Right. That's 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 the amazing thing about it, right? It's basically you and the distributed ledger. There's there's nothing in between. Yeah, exactly. And that means that you're not taking any extra risk. And for that reason, you should always be getting the die savings rate at all times. So for that reason, we expect that pretty much all wallets and uh, all like DeFi platforms and services, they will implement the die savings rate so that you can automatically get the rate, right? Get this extra return. Um, anytime you're, you're, you're holding die or using die on any kind of platform. And even centralized exchanges will likely do this um, because it's just, again, it's like it's, it's risk-free additional savings that you can earn right so there's no reason not to do it um and uh, so that's already really cool when we look at that in the context of using different DeFi platforms or wallets and just make it really convenient to, to earn a return right but also risk-free you mean other than the risk of using a smart contract and the inherent risks there yeah absolutely i mean i i mean no no additional risk if you're already using that so of course there's risk with using DAI, right? But there's no difference in risk between using DAI or using DAI that's getting the DAI savings rate. The risk of those two things is identical. So, so that and so that also means that if you are like a small business, for instance, um, or even any kind of of uh, business or enterprise, and you are running some of your accounting in DAI, then suddenly you can start earning a return on your float. And that's a huge deal because there's so much money lost and there's such a high cost right now to uh, this, you know, the dead capital that exists in small businesses. And and when you're doing these like, um, you know, enterprise transactions where 
you're sending, uh, let's say, a $10 million payment, and maybe it takes seven days for it to sort of fully pass through the accounting system and be fully processed because it's a very large payment. And in the traditional financial system, very often during those seven days, that a lot of interest is actually earned on that money, but that interest doesn't go to the business. That interest goes to the bank. We just take it because that's how it works. And with the die savings rate and, and the transparency and efficiency of the blockchain, now as a user, you get that money and no one else takes a cut of it. And that's just a huge deal, right? It's kind of like how we can go out there and we can, we can make so many small optimizations all over the place in how um, enterprise currently works. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I also wanted to ask you with regards to that is how did you get to the 2% savings rate that you have right now? Like why 2%? Why not 1% or 3%? Like what's, what's the logic there? Uh, so the thing is that the starting value, first of all, the starting value doesn't actually mean that much because it's just the, you know, it's just the point where it begins and then governance takes over and starts actually modifying it. So the, like, so the, the 2% number, um, like in general, you can't really, you can only kind of like, like reason about it in relative terms. So you can say, should it go up or should it go down? You can't really say like, you can't sort of in advance say it should be some exact number and then just know in advance that that's going to be the right number. So 2% was picked um, like mainly as kind of like, first of all, based, you know, based on it, it, it just, it, it just needed to be something positive. So it wasn't, didn't start off as zero since that um, might just make it harder for people to understand what it, what, what's even the point of it. Um, and then, I mean, some people believe that, 2% is where you would expect uh, like a fiat picked stable coins, um, you know, um, like uh, sort of like base return to equilibrate towards in the long run because central banks target a 2% inflation. But it's actually not, I mean, generally the whole sort of the whole, um, you know, science and, and even philosophy around how things like rates of return and interest rates they work uh it's like very very it's like very difficult to really say anything exact about it so ultimately the two percent number is just a starting point and it's very quickly going to change uh like i said there's already um like ongoing discussions in the community about reducing the the spread that the protocol charges so what that would do is in the media like in the immediate term that would increase the die savings rate. Um, however, it could also easily go down or even go up even more depending on the market dynamics of supply and demand of die, right? So basically, yeah, it's like it's it's going to be where it needs to be so that die remains stable and so that both die holders and vault users um, have access to their services at very high liquidity. Makes sense. How do you drive growth? Obviously, DAI has grown incredibly fast, certainly over the past few months. You've recently announced that you've passed 100 million DAI in circulation, which is a major milestone. And we've also seen, I think, like just over the last three months, like 81% growth in DAI locked in DeFi. How do you drive such growth in terms of adoption do you spend a lot of money on marketing or is it purely organic uh like so the, the growth that has happened in single lateral die 
um, up until this point has been entirely organic. So that growth has come purely from the foundation releasing the system and then the Ethereum community just adopting the system and, and just uh, growing entirely by itself. So really, so you have no marketing budget? Well, so I mean, there has, you know, so the foundation has a marketing team and it has a like, it has a marketing budget and has been doing like small experiments with it. But basically, because single collateral die was not the full version of the system, there was never really done any real kind of like marketing campaigns. And rather, the focus of the foundation was always to appeal to uh, the builders and the, the sort of the, the core ecosystem and the, the startups to build with Dai and build on top of it rather than trying to push it to the end user because um, it it just you know that was just the right thing to do at the time and that's still going to I mean that will always be the main focus of the foundation right up until the moment the foundation is dissolved the primary purpose of the foundation is to create a very very robust and self sufficient ecosystem around the protocol. But additionally, we are also going to begin actually doing um, larger scale marketing campaigns than what we've done so far. So, so basically what we've done up until this point is just like very small scale experimental marketing, mostly for, for market research and gathering data. And then now that uh, MCD has launched and essential features like the die savings rate and also the ability to scale through multiple collateral types, with that in place, it's actually possible to go out and uh, and do things like like even ads and and that kind of marketing. Um, and the place we are especially going to target is, of course, South America, right, where we already know there is this organic demand, right, and organic growth, and uh, and where there's already a lot of attention to the project. So we we're partnering with a lot of of, um, of the blockchain infrastructure there, and then we are looking to how we can do things like like advertisements around the benefits of, of DAI to regular people in those countries. and um, But also just like a lot of like what we also just do is like things like localization and translation and just like, it, you know, localized educational material and that kind of stuff. So we ultimately, again, facilitate the community to provide the real organic growth. Mm-hmm. And as the team grows, so correct me if I'm wrong, the team is working remotely, right? Like you guys are a pretty distributed team? Yeah, so the Mega Foundation has, actually the Mega Foundation has a very, a very big team, right? So um, there is um, 93, I believe, full-time employees of the foundation. And so about, I would guess around 30 to 40 of those people, they work in our offices. Um, and so we've got some some small offices around the world. So we've, you know, so we've got an office in Buenos Aires, uh, San Francisco, New York, and then um, Warsaw and Copenhagen. Got it. So it's not people working remotely; they actually do go to a local office. Yeah. And and work with each other. Yeah, some people do that, but but the majority still does work remotely. So all in all, we have uh, people from twenty two different countries working on the project. How do you see that scaling? As the team goes, as you're driving more and more adoption, are there any challenges there? Let me caveat that, right? I have a, a bit of a bias on that because at least in my experience building products, I've always noticed that when the team is actually centrally located, whether it's in one office or in you know multiple offices, you have 
the team members working one next to each other. It's just these casual conversations tend to foster a lot of innovation. And so many times the best ideas that we have came from, you know, just hallway conversations or, you know, over lunch and so forth. Nothing really that was planned. How do you manage the team remotely? How do you manage to do that effectively? Well, I think the number one important thing to always uh, make sure happens is to have a lot of meetups, right? So people actually meet in person. Um, and then on top of that, we also have, you know, like, like it's kind of like everybody works in the same office and that office is like our chat room, right? So we have all these internal, you know, we have this, this internal chat, right? Where that's where all the, the discussion actually happens. And that's kind of like where the organization as a whole communicates. Um, but ultimately, I mean, I think remote work and especially what, I mean, even though we aren't like not everybody on in the organization work remotely, we still are essentially a remote only organization. And that's because our teams are all structured so that uh, people in one office never work on the same team. So they're always like, a part of a remote team and the, the other people in the same office uh, are not going to be part of the same team. And that's, that's critical because if you don't build, if you don't structure it that way, uh, what happens is you always get sort of two teams. You get the team that's co-located and then you get sort of the other team. That's the remote team. Right. So, and, and we do actually have also, we do actually also in fact have a, a, like a single team in the organization that is entirely co-located. And that's the, uh, the Oasis team, which is, based out of Warsaw. So they are they are all focused on a single product. And so they work kind of in a, in a different way from many of the other teams in the foundation. And I think that's just, I mean, that's really interesting, right? And there's, there's pros and cons to each approach. approach. Uh, and I think by far the greatest advantage of remote work is you just get access to a completely different level of talent, right? And that is ultimately the strength that we have in the Mega Foundation is that we've just got... Uh, most of the just supremely talented people in the blockchain space, right? Like the people that kind of like wrote the book on smart contracts. Um, like most uh, most of those people, they they've been working on Maker, right? And and um, that's what's enabled us to to create such an advanced smart contract system securely. Yeah, you mean just because you're not limited to any specific geography in in hiring the best people. Yeah, exactly. And also because, I mean, when you're looking at something like really, you know, really um, talented developers or, you know, just like uh, just like really specialized researchers in specific, you know, areas of blockchain development, uh, they just, you know, they just never like they don't have to be located in a specific place. So they don't want to. Right. They want to be able to work however they want, right? And all they need is a computer to do their work. And that's that's very often how, like, I mean, that's how everyone in the early days of, of Ethereum saw the whole the whole prospect of, of working on blockchain, right? And then, of course, like now that, that the world has changed a lot, right? And blockchain is in a completely different space. Now there's also, like, I mean, a lot of people do absolutely prefer to have the office space. Um, and also, again, it's all about making sure that there are those meetups, right? And that people meet in person as often as possible. Got it. So basically employees have the ability to decide whether they want to come into the local office or just work completely remotely. Yeah. So last question, how closely do you follow the Ethereum 2.0 
progress and what are your thoughts about their planned move to proof of stake i don't really follow it too closely but i mean i've been i have been following it for the past five years right as long as i've been involved in ethereum um and it's obviously it's changed a lot over the course of of, of all these years though in a way it also hasn't really changed i mean in the end it is quite similar to what was originally envisioned in my opinion um but actually uh in the mega foundation we don't really like we don't really view ethereum 2.0 in the same way that a lot of other people do because um uh like the way that we think about scalability in general and just like the question of like which blockchain to choose in general is that um you don't have to ever depend on any single blockchain for your scalability or just in general it's actually possible to engineer blockchain applications that are what we call um well we call internally we call it blockchain transcendent so basically applications that aren't anchored to a single blockchain but instead you could have something like the maker protocol uh, simultaneously exist as a single system but that spans across all the different popular blockchains and that way you get to um, get the massive performance benefits of having you know many parallel blockchains and um, just like having a lot of capacity um, and a lot of nodes and you even get to have sort of the you know the the um, the choice and sort of the the freedom of many different options when it comes to um, what kind of trade-offs you want to do, right? Do you want to be on a more centralized blockchain with extreme performance like EOS? Or do you want to go on Ethereum and just like maximize decentralization? Um, or do you want something in between, right? Or do you even, do you want a permission blockchain? Like um, decentralized protocols can actually, like through cross-chain technology, they can actually um, bridge all of these gaps. And so what that means is that Ethereum 2.0 isn't like, for us, that's not when Mayor can finally scale. Because already today, there's bridges between Ethereum and EOS, and there's actually DAI transactions happening on the EOS um, for some specific, uh, mostly gaming-related applications that run, um, like, that run these cross-chain bridges. So they transport the DAI onto EOS, where they can do the transactions with you know high throughput transactions, small micropayments, and that kind of stuff, um, and then they can freely be transported back and forth. And a lot of other cross-chain bridges are coming as well. Some of them are kind of like similar, where it's like a single project that's running their own bridge for their own needs. And in other cases, there are these more decentralized um, solution solutions that that bridges various blockchains, including projects like. Um, like Keep, there's a there's a project called Keep that does it, and there's actually a lot more. Like there's, uh, I I believe that we are tracking like um, seven different cross chain protocols right now that we believe all of them are going to deliver very very compelling solutions within next year. Um, and in the long run, you could even see even more advanced solutions come that are based on something like Maker's uh, governance system to create this like fully decentralized like spider web of cross-chain transactions that allows uh, the mega protocol to truly like transcend any single blockchain. But 
this, I mean, but that still also means that when ETH 2.0 comes out, it's going to be just great, right? Because that just means that um, the Ethereum blockchain is going to get a lot of advantages. But um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the Ethereum, like the way that ETH 2.0 itself is structured is kind of like being blockchain transcendent in the first place, in a sense that ETH 2.0 is about having a lot of, you know, sharding means just running a bunch of blockchains at the same time. So you're already, like, if you want to be able to get the advantages of ETH 2.0, you have to start thinking today about how are you going to build your application so that it can exist across multiple blockchains. So because we've already done that, that also means we will immediately be able to, to get all the benefits of ETH 2.0 as soon as it launches. Rune, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Fascinating uh, discussion. And uh, as I mentioned several times, I'm super excited about what you guys are doing. So very much look forward to see what you ship next. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your insights. Thanks so much for having me. It's great. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out.